We're in a series of lessons on the New Testament Christian. As you well know, if you've been here the last uh, few weeks, basing this on the theme, it's not there, okay, all right, it's supposed to be, wonder what's going on here, okay, Oh, I had it on the wrong thing. Obviously, I didn't get as much out of the technology boot camp as I should have. <laughs> the New Testament Christian knows he is saved. We're looking at a series from the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship theme from this past March, which had at its, as its theme the New Testament Christian and various uh, aspects of New Testament Christianity. We began talking about the subject, what is a Christian? Because obviously before we uh, uh, can talk about the aspects of Christian living, we need to know that we are truly Christians, what it takes to be a Christian, a New Testament Christian, the only kind of Christian there is because the New Testament makes Christians, Christians only and only Christians. Today, having looked at other lessons in this theme, we're going to look at a very important topic about salvation, the topic of salvation. I don't believe there is a topic uh, as important as the topic of salvation, though many do not view it as, as that important. But indeed, it is absolutely crucial. This lesson, incidentally, was uh, preached at Memphis and in the lectureship book by a White Oak uh, boy. Uh, who's not a boy anymore, Larry Aka. This was his topic there, and he uh, uh, had an excellent uh, manuscript, uh, and I have gained much from uh, looking at that approach uh, to that lesson that he uh, used. Larry's a very faithful and capable preacher of the gospel of Christ. But let's ask this question. Can a person know he is saved? Not long ago we talked about this, I think, in Bible class, uh, that, you know, when you are asked if you are a New Testament Christian, someone asks you, are you saved? Do you uh, stammer a little bit? Uh, are you unsure? Or, or can, you, uh, can you answer in the affirmative with confidence but with genuine humility as you do and say, yes, I, I, I know that I am saved? And the basis for that salvation we shall see as we go further uh, in this lesson. I can certainly read in my New Testament about a man who had confidence about his salvation near the end of his life. That man was the Apostle Paul, who made this very familiar statement, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 in the New King James translation. Salvation. It is an absolutely crucial subject, and yes, we will, already, we will go ahead and answer the question, can we know that we're saved? Yes, but we're going to demonstrate that as we look at this subject of salvation in the following ways. First of all, we are going to see salvation spurned. Because tragically, salvation is spurned by the vast majority of those who are 
living today. But then we're going to look briefly at salvation sought. How is it that we should seek salvation? And how are some seeking salvation in ways they should not be seeking that salvation? But then we're going to look at salvation secured. Can we truly secure salvation and know that we have secured it? And what about sealing our salvation? Is it possible to know that our salvation is sealed? And what about shipwrecking our salvation? Is that even possible? Many today say no. Many say you can't shipwreck your salvation once you have obtained it. Well, let's look first of all at salvation spurned, rejected by so many today. And as we do, a passage comes to mind that we need to consider, and that is the passage where our Lord in the great Sermon on the Mount made this statement, this admonition, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And listen, and there are few who find it. There are few who find it because, tragically, many don't even seek it. In fact, they spurn the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. What is it that separates us from God? Sin. And that's why so many spurn salvation is because they spurn the idea of sin. In today's world, perhaps more than ever, this is the case. Remember the prophet Isaiah, his statement, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And then we're reminded by Paul that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is is eternal life. It's there, awaiting those who will seek it, but tragically, many spurn it. The atheists today, a growing number seemingly in that number, spurn with disdain and contempt the idea of salvation because they spurn with contempt and disdain the idea or the concept of sin. And that's the whole problem. The whole problem that causes people to spurn salvation is a problem of sin and the failure to understand and appreciate sin. We will never get people to seek salvation, as we'll talk about in a moment, we'll never get people to seek salvation until they understand and appreciate and realize the seriousness of sin, until they do understand that their sins, their iniquities have separated them from God. And of course, a great many people don't even believe in God these days. A growing number are at best agnostic, infidels, those who disdain the idea that sin has separated us and humanism and the idea that man is man's all and man is the answer to all of man's problems spurns the idea of God, let alone the idea of salvation and also spurning the idea of sin. We'll never get people to seek salvation until they first come to the realization that they are separated from the living God who truly will condemn those who do not seek 
salvation through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to talk about salvation sought. And yes, we have examples in scripture of those who sought salvation. We have the 3,000 or so on Pentecost, the first time the gospel was preached. And they were convicted by Peter and the other apostles, uh, a portion of Peter's sermon being recorded there in Acts chapter 2. They were convicted of crucifying the Christ, the Son of the living God. Culmination of that process by which that conviction came is seen in verse 36. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, they'd heard enough then, and that was the culmination for them. Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart, meaning what? They had come to the realization of their sins. As we said, until this point was reached, there could have been no seeking of salvation. But when they came to the realization that they were sinners, sinners in the sense that they had been guilty of crucifying the very Christ, the Son of the living God, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. They already believed what they had heard. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A beautiful example of those who sought salvation. And then the Ethiopian eunuch in that same book of Acts, a few chapters later in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, as this eunuch was on his way back from uh, Jerusalem, having been there to worship, and Philip was instructed uh, to go to him, to join to uh, the chariot there, and to teach him. He was reading from Isaiah 53. And he asked Philip, of whom does the prophet speak, of himself or some other man? In verse 35 of Acts 8 says, Philip, from that scripture, preached to him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the Eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they both came up out of the water, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing, seeking salvation. Another beautiful example of it. Saul of Tarsus, about whom we have spoken many times, is another beautiful example of those who sought salvation. And we have a record of that seeking in uh, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, as he was, of course, that great persecutor of the Lord's church initially, to whom the Lord appeared on the Damascus Road to qualify him, as we've talked about even in class this morning, to qualify him to become an apostle after he had completed his salvation search, if you will, and obeyed the gospel of Christ, after he had complied with the teaching of Ananias who said, why are you tarrying? Acts twenty two sixteen. arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And Acts 26 gives us some further information about the seeking of salvation by Saul of Tarsus. And so here are those who sought salvation, sincere seekers of truth. And how did they secure that salvation? Every one of them 
secured it in the same way as we'll see in a moment. But first of all, let's look at some ways in which salvation is not secured. And yet there are ways that many are trying to secure salvation. Some through sincerity. Believing that as long as one is sincere, one is saved. It doesn't really matter whether one is uh, bringing his life or her life into compliance with this book. It's just simply how sincere an individual is. How can one, uh, how can one be condemned by God if he is completely sincere and striving to please God and serve God? Well, sincerity alone doesn't say. Saul of Tarsus, the man about whom we just spoke, was an example of extreme sincerity. The eunuch himself was extremely sincere in what he was doing, had made a long trip to go to Jerusalem to worship, and the only way he knew how, he was sincere, but that sincerity didn't save him, didn't save Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, who became known, of course, as the Apostle Paul, would later say, I thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought with myself I should do many things. But that was the problem. And what did he himself say about his fellow Israelites? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them record that they have a what? A zeal for God. Is that sincerity? Of course. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They have a zeal for God. They are sincere, but Paul said they cannot be saved by that sincerity alone. What about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Cornelius was a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house, gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And yet, he was instructed by heaven itself by an angel to go and send to Joppa for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you will be what? saved. Sincere? Oh, absolutely. Saved? Absolutely not. Sincerity alone doesn't save. And Cornelius is an example of another way in which, in which salvation is sought, but not secured, and that's through morality alone. Was there a more moral man than, than uh, Cornelius? Was there a more moral man than Saul of Tarsus, who was uh, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the sect of the Pharisees, one who was very, very strong morally as he believed in the law and the moral nature of living for God as he thought he was living for God. Then what about feelings? I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade what I feel in my heart as one points to the blood-pumping organ in the center of one's body, I wouldn't trade what I feel in my heart for a stack of Bibles or words to that effect. What a tragic, tragic statement that is. Because that is in effect saying, I know, I know how I feel, and don't tell me that my feeling is wrong. Feelings can be so wrong. Let's go back to Saul of Tarsus again. What a classic example of one who said in Acts 23.1, after he had obeyed the gospel, I have lived in all good conscience until this day when I was persecuting Christians, when I held the clothing of those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, I did that 
believing with all of my heart, feeling with all of my heart that I was saved. And I'm so thankful that feelings do not determine our salvation. We all should be. Because, you see, if that were the case, and you and I were talking, I could feel that you were lost, and you could feel that you were saved. And how are we going to settle that? Well, I feel you're lost. You, well, you say, well, I feel I'm saved. Well, we just have to wait till the judgment and see who's right. I don't want to do that. Do you? Not if you're thinking right, you don't. I don't want feelings to be the determining factor in the securing of my salvation. Oh, I want feelings associated with salvation. And all of us must have strong feelings associated with salvation. The deepest possible love and gratitude should be associated with salvation. But feelings alone cannot, cannot secure it, nor can religious zeal. Being religious, we've already touched upon the Israelites, Romans 10, 1 and 2. They have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. Do you know of anyone, can you think of any group of people religiously who have tremendous zeal? Of course you can. But their zeal is not according to knowledge. Religious zeal, being religious, is not the way salvation is secured. So it's not by sincerity or morality or by feelings or by religious zeal. But in the case of those examples of those who sought salvation, it begins with belief. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, Jesus said. It must lead us to repent, as we have so often said in Luke 13, 3 and 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, Jesus said, you will all likewise perish. Change your mind, that's repentance, and let that change of mind lead you to a change of life, lead you to confess that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus promised, if you'll do that and confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. With the heart man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10 and verse 10. And yes, baptism. Absolutely essential in the securing of our salvation. As we talked about in class this morning, Galatians three twenty six says, For you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus for... Because as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. How did you become a son of God by faith? By putting Christ on in baptism. Doesn't that comport beautifully with what Jesus stated so clearly in Mark 16, 16? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Of course it does. Everything harmonizes in the New Testament with every other statement on the subject of baptism and makes that culminating act of faith absolutely essential. And yet today, the vast majority of those claiming to be in Christ reject, reject the final step of faith that enables us to secure salvation. Salvation is not secured until baptism in water has been accomplished. Why? Because the water is so powerful to cleanse? No. Because the blood is so powerful to cleanse. But only in the water has God promised to apply the blood of his only begotten son. That's the process. Well, is salvation sealed at that point? Some say yes. 
Well, some say it's sealed at the point of faith only because their plan of salvation is contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. But let's assume that we have complied, have sought salvation, have secured it, as we have just outlined, the only way we can, through belief, repentance, confession, and baptism. Is our, is our salvation sealed at that point in time? Some would say absolutely. Sealed. Done. Nothing else you can do will change that at all. Because once you are saved, you are always saved. And we have alluded to this subject many, many times because we come across passages so often in our study of other subjects that pertain to the subject of the possibility of apostasy rather than the impossibility of it because there are literally hundreds of passages in Scripture that teach us that salvation is not sealed at the moment we become New Testament Christians. If so, Paul didn't know it because Paul made this statement. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified or be a castaway, as the King James says, disqualified. Now, does disqualified mean disqualified or dis does disqualified mean disqualified? What does disqualified mean? What does becoming a castaway mean? Well, we know what it means. If I'm qualified when I obey the gospel and then I later become disqualified, Am I still saved? Of course not. The same writer to the Philippian brethren wrote, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on. Pressing on. Again, if then you were raised with Christ, he writes to the Colossian Christians, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. How do we seal salvation? Set your mind. Keep on setting your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And, of course, the familiar text in Revelation 2 and verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to Throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Here's the part we normally quote. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Salvation sealed. When? When faithfulness takes us even into death. Not five minutes before. And of course the familiar text that is often used to try to prove once saved, always saved, is actually a text that, that supports what we're teaching here about how we seal salvation. Not that it's already sealed, but how do we seal it? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's a text that is misused and abused to try to teach the impossibility of apostasy when in fact it's a text along with these others we've noticed that teaches us how to seal salvation. How do we seal salvation? By hearing the voice of the shepherd, by coming to know him and continuing to follow him 
and he will give. My sheep hear my voice, a condition, I know them, and they follow me, a condition, and they follow me, and I give. They don't follow me, I don't give. That's the reverse of it. And so to seal salvation, to seal salvation, we have to keep following. And as long as we keep following, we have eternal life in prospect. We don't have it in reality because we can certainly lose it, as we've already seen from these and literally hundreds of passages that either directly or indirectly, either explicitly or implicitly teach the possibility of falling away. But the comforting factor is that as long as I keep following the shepherd, by following his word, no one can arbitrarily snatch me out of the Father's hand or out of the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. But that's the key. To seal salvation, I have to keep on following. I have to keep on growing. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3.18. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. First Peter 2 and verse 2. And if you don't and you turn your back upon the shepherd, then you have salvation shipwrecked. Salvation shipwrecked. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Paul wrote to the young preacher Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, notice it, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have what? Have suffered shipwreck. Shipwreck of what? The faith, the system of faith. Shipwreck of Christianity. They've made shipwreck of their Christianity. Who are they, Paul? Well, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And of course, 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, a passage we're about to be studying in our Sunday night series. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them, than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and is unto Sal having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Is it possible to turn one's back upon one's salvation? Of course it is. From Larry Acuff's uh, manuscript in the lectureship book, he quoted Brother Wayne Jackson on this particular aspect of this study and asked the question, what about the brother in Corinth who had taken his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5? Here's what Brother Wayne Jackson wrote, and it's an excellent statement. I want to share it with you. There is unequivocal inspired testimony that a believer can lose his soul on account of personal sin. There was a brother in the Corinthian church who was living in fornication with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5.1. Paul, by inspiration, states that he had judged this wayward man, verse 3. Further, he admonished the saints at Corinth to put away the wicked man from among yourselves, verse 13, which was a command to exercise church discipline. They were to expel the offender from their fellowship. The design of the discipline was to bring the wayward brother to repentance. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, verse 5. And he says, compare 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and verses 14 and 15. The implication is quite plain. If the fornicator did not abandon his evil, he would not be saved in the day of the Lord. If it was impossible for him to be lost, the function slash goal of the discipline was misstated. And then he says, here is an interesting thought. Can one become so wicked that he is unfit for church fellowship, yet still fit for God's fellowship? <laughs> that is an interesting thought, isn't it? He can become so wicked he's unfit to be fellowshiped by the church, but God will still fellowship him. that make any sense? Well, of course not. Of course it doesn't. And so we have seen, tragically, that salvation is spurned by so many today. How tragic. That it is sought and must be sought, but it must be sought properly, not by erroneous ways as we have looked at it. It can be secured only in one way, through obedience to the gospel. And it can be sealed only by remaining faithful, even unto death, with the full realization that it can be shipwrecked. Can a person, can a person know he is saved? Well, we close with this passage. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Walk according to the word. The New Testament Christian knows he is saved. And as we think about that salvation, it is secured, remember, only by a belief that leads you to repent and then to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to be baptized for the remission of sins and then to remain faithful even unto death. If you haven't done those things in obeying the gospel, we plead with you to do them this very morning. If you have, but you are not faithful now and need to come home to your first love so that you may once again know that you know him, we plead with you to come home as we stand to sing to encourage you.